0: All right, so I'm going to give it a try preaching from up here today. Feels kind of weird. I'm like looking down on everyone, Um, but you do that every Sunday, right, Brian? I mean up here when you're leading worship. Um, All right, let's get started. Uh, We're in this series called uh, FAQ, and if you haven't been here, we're halfway through it. We've been asking some um, really tough questions about faith and about the Bible. And we started, uh, the first question we asked was, uh, why does God allow so much evil? And then we asked, um, does God cause natural disasters? And if you were here last week, we asked, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? And then today we're gonna ask the next one. Um, no, seriously, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? Uh, because it's such a big question. Um, And there's just so many passages that if you ever read through parts of the Old Testament, you stumble across and you just think, man, God seems really angry. And he's punishing people or judging people or he's, he's acting out of that anger. Uh, and last week, we primarily looked at the second half of the Old Testament, which are these prophets, the, the prophetic writings. And the prophets use this one word over and over, wrath, God's wrath. And so we tried to unpack, what does that mean? Does that just mean he's angry at people all the time and, and, and we should expect him to be angry at us and, and you know, we, we just sort of wrestled with that and tried to figure out, is there a different way or is there a new way to understand what maybe the prophets mean when they talk about God's wrath? Well, today we're going to look at a different part of the Old Testament, the earlier part of the Old Testament. And um, many of you know uh, the story from the book of Exodus. Um, Even if you didn't grow up going to church, you've you've probably heard that story where uh, God rescues uh, this group of people, the Israelites, from um, slavery in Egypt, and he leads them out, and then he basically creates a new nation from these people. They've been rescued from slavery, and they go out into the wilderness, and they come to this place called Mount Sinai. He gives them some new laws to live by as a nation, and then they wander in the wilderness for a number of years, and then finally they come to this promised land, this land that God had said to their ancestors, I'm going to bring you to this land where you'll become a nation and you'll live there. Uh, The problem is there are people already living in this promised land. So what do we do with these people and how are we going to live here when they're Already living there. So at the edge of the promised land, Moses gathers all the people and he basically gives them one long final charge. He's on his deathbed. He's about to die. He's not going to go with them into the promised land. And so he stands there and he gives them one final message. He summarizes a bunch of the laws that God has given them and he gives them this, this sort of rousing message. As you go into the promised land, here's what I want you to do. And that long message is basically the book of Deuteronomy. It's all written down and that's the message. And in that message, Here's what he says. This is from chapter seven. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them. Totally, and the Hebrew word that's used there is this word, harem, and we're gonna unpack that in a little bit. God will help you defeat these people who are living there, and when you do, you must destroy them totally, and that's what they did. In fact, the first story we come across in the book of Joshua, which comes next, chapter six, there's a story about the city named Jericho, and it ends this way. When the trumpets sounded, The army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, and they destroyed, same Hebrew word there, harem, with the sword, every living thing in it men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And that kind of destruction or those kinds of descriptions are repeated throughout the book of Joshua and even in a few other places in the following accounts. And we read those and we often, if you're like me, you would say, well, I thought God was loving. I, I, I wouldn't have assumed that God would want to do that to people. I thought God wanted Israel to be a blessing to other nations, not to slaughter them. Didn't Jesus come along later and say that we should make peace, right? Not war. That we should love our enemies, right? Not kill them. That we should pursue uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. That human life is somehow sacred. Why is God so angry here? That's the question. Why is God so angry in the Old Testament, particularly in this part of the Old Testament, where it seems like he's either commanding or allowing the slaughter of wholesale peoples. Well, I want to give you a few thoughts today. Um, And as I said every week, I don't necessarily have great answers to this question. Um, And that's because this isn't frequently answered questions. It's frequently asked questions, right? Um, So uh, I'm going to give you a few thoughts, and I'm not going to be able to solve all the tensions Here, um, or or answer all the questions um, in the next few minutes. In fact, I'm probably, I I almost certainly am going to raise some more questions and, and raise some more doubts. And yet we believe that our questions and our doubts can coexist and stand beside our faith. In fact, we believe it's not really faith unless there's questions and doubts that stand along with it. So with all that in mind, wherever you are in your journey of faith, whether you've been a Christian for a long time and maybe you learned the story of Jericho, right, as a kid, and maybe you read some of those Bible stories, or maybe you're new at all this or coming back to church or the reason you haven't gone to church for a long time is because of stories like this, wherever you are, I want to just offer a few thoughts and see if they're helpful. And then, um, so I'm going to offer four thoughts. And then at some point, I want to get to a a word, Uh, one word I'll kind of wrap up with, an idea or a concept that hopefully will pull some of the things together. So let me start, four thoughts. Um, Number one, and I encourage you to write these down. um, So the next time you're reading through this part of the Old Testament, you can sort of go back and these might be helpful. But number one is this, war was common in the ancient Near East. It was common in the ancient Near East. And we have to remember this. Um, It was a normal part of everyday life. It's just what nations and what peoples did to one another on a regular basis. And it was always seen in a religious way. There were always religious undertones. When two groups of people fought against one another, it was believed that it was the two gods who were really fighting against one another. And whichever god was the most powerful was the one that would win, and war touched everyone. There weren't um, there weren't soldiers that you sent halfway around the world where you just kind of heard stories, but it didn't really affect your life. There wasn't a big difference between soldiers and civilians. Everyone took part of it in it. When your village was attacked, everybody tried to defend themselves. And if your enemies won, you were likely going to be killed, or you were going to be taken as a slave or as a prisoner. The brutality of war was just a part of ancient Near Eastern life. And that doesn't make it good, and that doesn't make it right, uh, or anything like that. It was horrible, right? But it does mean that we bring a very modern sensibility to the notion of war. So when we read texts like this, they seem so foreign to us. They seem so violent and graphic to us. But they wouldn't have been that way to ancient peoples, they would have read these texts and said, yeah, that's life. Yeah, that's how it works. When they read these texts and see that God is commanding these things or God is wrapped up in all these things, that would not have been problematic to them at all. They would have accepted that. They would have all believed that, of course, their God is fighting on their behalf. So we need to keep that in mind. A lot of the tensions or problems we have, not all, but a lot of them when we read these texts, have more to do with our modern sensibilities and notions and lives with war than they do the texts themselves. Here's a second thought I want to give you. Number two, uh, the war texts are often rhetorical in nature. They're not precise journalistic accounts. And that's important because we read these texts or these stories and sometimes the way we read them is as if they were written by a modern historian or a a modern uh, journalist that was giving us an objective, accurate, uh, precise eyewitness account to exactly what was going on and what was happening. But that's not how these accounts were written. Accounts like the ones in Joshua that we read were probably written much later, probably generations later. Maybe the stories were passed along orally, but they were set down and written and compiled and then edited and put together generations later. And they might have been written in such a way as to glorify the faith of the founding fathers. They almost certainly included exaggeration, hyperbole, maybe rhetorical flourishes that actually idealize what really happened. On the ground. Now, that might be hard to understand, so let me give you a quick example. Um, in Joshua 10, so this is after 10 chapters in Joshua of lots of war and lots of violence and lots of conquering. Here's what it says, Joshua 10. Um, so Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survival. He totally destroyed, and there's that Hebrew word again, harem, all who breathed just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Now there's other passages like this throughout the book of Joshua that, that just describe over and over how Joshua and his armies defeated every single people group, and they slaughtered all of them, and they annihilated any, all of them, and they didn't take any prisoners, and they left no one alive. That's brutal. And then you get to the very next book, the book of Judges, and here's how it starts. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Thought you slaughtered all of the Canaanites. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Where did these 10,000 men come from? After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in where? The hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. I thought you conquered those areas. I thought there was nobody living anymore in the western foothills and the Negev and the hill country. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. We keep going. It says, now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. But Manasseh, that's another tribe, did not drive out the people of Beth-shan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibliam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land." When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. I thought you did drive them out completely. Like, what's going on here? Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites, neither did Zebulun, neither did Asher, neither did Naphtali, and it goes on and on and on and lists how all of these tribes weren't able to wipe out the people that we were told they wiped out. So this is just one example of where the rhetoric of everything that was living or that has breath was destroyed and annihilated. It's probably not true in the way that we perceive truth as modern people looking for this sort of accurate, precise description of how things went. In fact, here's how one Old Testament scholar describes this. He says this, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that like to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. So when we're reading some of the more graphic descriptions either of what was commanded to be done or what was recorded as accomplished, we need to allow for this rhetorical element. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, that's important, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. So that's an important qualifier when we read these kinds of passages in the Old Testament. Now, here's a third thought. Number three, harem, or total destruction, as it's often translated, was limited. So so the passage we read earlier uh, in Deuteronomy where Moses stands up and he says, go in and utterly destroy these seven groups of people, it was limited to those seven groups of people, it was not to be applied anywhere or everywhere that the Israelites found themselves in battle. In fact, look at what Moses also said. This is in Deuteronomy, same speech. He says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to the city." When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. This is how you treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy. That's that word harem again, them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, still a tough passage to read, right? If they don't, you know, go for the peace offer, then lay siege to the city, kill the men, take everybody else as slaves if they don't surrender. But that concept of harem or total destruction, utter destruction, is only applied to specific people in specific situations. Which gets to the fourth thought I want to offer you. Number four, uh, harem was described as God's judgment on wicked and irredeemable people. The reason that these seven nations or these seven, they weren't nations in the way we think of it, but just people groups, were singled out for harem or for utter destruction is because they're really wicked. And God is using the Israelites to judge them. Moses makes this really clear in his speech. He says this in Deuteronomy 9. After the Lord God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, no. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity. So Moses is saying, don't think you're winning these battles. Don't think I'm going to give you victory. Don't think that that you're doing all this because you're so awesome, right? That's not what this is about at all. It's about these people and how wicked they have become. In fact, they've become so wicked for so long that they've desecrated the land and they've forfeited their right to live in this land. So I'm gonna take it away and give it to you. Implication, if you ever become as wicked as them, you'll forfeit your right to live in the land as well. But the larger point is this, God is judging the Canaanites. And this is a final measure on them because they've gotten to the point where they're so wicked. Now, we're told in other accounts that the Canaanites practiced incest. They practiced bestiality. They raped their children as a part of worshiping certain kinds of fertility gods that they believed were pleased by this. They even sacrificed children We have archaeological accounts that have have uncovered these sort of sacrificial ceremonies and burn layers in all sorts of ways that they understand this didn't just happen every once in a while. Potentially thousands of children were sacrificed as a result of this. They did horrible things for so long and God has put up with them for so long. Long And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. So much so that the Old Testament says basically they have desecrated themselves beyond repair. They've desecrated their families. They've desecrated their possessions. They've desecrated their land. They've desecrated their entire cities. So much so that it's become irredeemable. Irredeemable. And, and, and this is what happens. And this is how we get to the understanding of this word, harem. Harem in Hebrew, the reason I keep bringing it up, is notoriously difficult to translate. In fact, if you have a Bible, chances are there's footnotes every time this shows up, and there's a bunch of explanations at the bottom of your Bible that tries to unpack what it means. um, Because it doesn't always just mean to utterly or totally destroy something to help you understand what's going on. Um, In the ancient Near East, when you attacked another city and you won a battle and you defeated the city, you would move in and you would take their homes as yours and you would take their animals as yours and you would take their tools as yours and you might take their wives as yours and you would take their treasure, if they had treasure, as yours. This was the spoils of war. This was the reward. This was the plunder The armies and people took when they conquered other people. But when the word harem is used, it means that the people and the cities that you are attacking and that you are defeating have become so wicked that they and everything they have is irredeemable. It's irredeemable. Don't take anything from them. Don't take any treasure. Don't take any women. Don't take any of their animals. Don't try to take their temples and repurpose them for your own worship. Don't take anything from it. It has all become so tainted and so wicked that it has all become devoted to God for his judgment. And that's why this word is often translated totally destroy, which seems a bit harsh for us to understand. But I wonder if it would be like coming to the gates of Auschwitz after World War II and saying, wow, we could reuse this whole complex. It could become a great school. There's all these buildings here and and easy places for people to sleep. Maybe it could be a summer camp, right? There's barracks and all that. No, no. This place is irredeemable. It's irredeemable. And we should treat it that way. And so you could see how the Israelites, with that perspective, would have taken all of this to mean totally destroy every single aspect of it. Now, they might not have literally done that. We don't know for certain, but when Moses talks about totally destroying or using harem and practicing harem. In that passage I read in the beginning, it says this from Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God has delivered the seven nations over to you and you have defeated them, practice, you must practice harem. Then he explains what that means. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asher poles, burn their idols in the fire for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. You see, the focus isn't violence, And killing, even if that was included. The focus is there's nothing here to take. There's nothing here you can use. There is nothing here that can be redeemed. It will only turn you away. You are to be holy and separate and devoted to me. Now, let me pause for a second. Those are the four thoughts I have to offer you. And um, maybe they're helpful, maybe they're not so helpful. Uh, They hopefully give you some context. They hopefully give you some perspective on what's going on here. But if you're like me, um, they're still disturbing, right? Because it seems like what God is doing with Israel during this time doesn't fit what he's trying to do in the bigger picture, because if in the bigger picture, God is trying to reconcile people to himself, if, if, if that's the story of the whole Bible, as sometimes we say, the story of the Bible is God trying to reconcile men and women and children and people to himself, it doesn't seem like that's what he's doing here. So let me give you one more thought. It's one idea, and it's really just one word. It's summed up in the word, accommodation accommodation. Here's a definition for you. Um, Accommodation is the process of adapting or adjusting to someone or something. So your boss says uh, the due date for the project needs to be one week earlier. Can you accommodate that? And you say, yeah, I think I can adjust and I can adapt and I can make some things work and I can accommodate. You know you sign up for a class and the class is maybe full maybe it's a class at school maybe it's a class at REI maybe it's a cooking class or a painting class and it says online that the class is full but the email address of the teacher is there so you shoot an email to the teacher and you say I see that the class is full is there any way you can still accommodate me And the teacher says yeah we can we can make that work we might have to change rooms or something else but we can we can make it work accommodation is adapting or adjusting to someone or to something. It's to a new reality. And it usually means that something has to change, something has to be compromised, or something has to be tweaked, that that you have to do things differently than the plan you originally anticipated. And we see in the Bible that God accommodates in all kinds of ways. God accommodates to human realities He's God. He's infinite, right? We're finite people. So even to relate to us, to communicate with us, to have a relationship with us, he has to accommodate to our finiteness. John Calvin talks about this a lot. He's a famous theologian. But more importantly for us today, God accommodates to sinful realities. See, things didn't go as planned, Humans sinned, we disobey, we hurt ourselves, we hurt other people, and that's not God's fault. He gave us that option, he gave us that choice, he gave us that freedom, and we took it, and we ran with it, and now the world is permeated by it. But instead of giving up, instead of God saying, well, forget it, if that's the way you guys are gonna be, if that's the choice you're gonna make, well, forget it. I'll just I'll just you know, start over, zap everybody, or I don't want to have anything to do with you. God adapts. God adjusts. God accommodates. Even if that means involving himself in messy, complex realities that are taking place on the ground. Let me give you a specific example from the Old Testament, when a man um, and a woman in Israel, ancient Israel, got married, uh, they committed to a lifelong relationship with one another. It was a relationship characterized by love and fidelity and faithfulness. That's how God designed marriage. That's the context for intimacy. That's the context for reproduction, for having a family, for living a life together, a union of two people who are committed to one another. That's how God designed it. But human sin... Today and in Israel meant it didn't always work that way. In Israel, people were unfaithful. People were abusive. People were difficult, right? So sometimes marriage doesn't work that way because when you enter it, you're not as committed as you thought you were. Sometimes marriages don't work very well for reasons that are totally outside of one person's control, (laughs) But when it became difficult in Israel, when it became abusive, when it became unbearable, if you were stuck with it and you were a woman, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was miserable. If you were married to a man who treated you horribly, who abused you, who could kick you out of the house, who could do anything he wanted in a a place, in a time where men had power and authority, you had no other options. You could do nothing about it. As long as you were legally married to him, you were bound to him, and he could treat you however he wanted, and your life would be miserable. And so God accommodated. And in the ancient law of Moses, he put a stipulation in, in certain cases, for divorce. For a woman not to be bound to an abusive husband, for a woman to not be legally bound to stay in this thing, to be able to actually have a life outside of that. And in fact, Jesus addresses this one time. He says this, why then, this is actually the Pharisees talking to Jesus. They're talking about marriage one day and and Jesus talks about all these great things about marriage. And they look at him and they say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They bring up these specific cases. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Now, I'm taking a huge risk here because I'm introducing one controversial, difficult, complex topic to try to explain the first complex, difficult, controversial topic that I already introduced, which is like the biggest mistake in all of preaching that you should never do. So I'm not gonna even try to address what this means for us today, but isn't it clear what it meant for Jesus in their time? I mean, isn't Jesus looking at them and saying, in Israel's case, marriage was the ideal. A lifelong relationship of love and fidelity would be ideal, but because of your sin, because of your hard hearts, God accommodated. God accommodated. The ideal is still there. Divorce in Israel was a broken, insufficient band-aid to help minimize some of the shrapnel. It wasn't really a solution, but God accommodated. And I think God does the same thing with war and violence in the Old Testament. He doesn't want to be involved in war and violence toward other people. He wants to be in right relationship with other people when some are so wicked and so hard-hearted and so stubborn and will never turn back to him. God accommodated and he used war as an instrument of his judgment. He probably didn't want to be known as the warrior God in sort of this violent war-making sort of way, but that was the culture of the ancient Near East at that time. So God accommodated to his people he allowed these stories to be written by, about him in their own literary style, using their own rhetoric and their own cultural assumptions. And God didn't step in and say, wait a second, wait a second. 30 centuries from now, people are gonna read this and they might jump to some different implications or have some misinterpretations about all of this. No. He met these people where they were. And he accommodated. He adopted A nation and a people at a time when that meant linking himself to them, which meant land and laws and political systems and a military. And that would involve him in messy, complex ways. He knew they wouldn't always obey the laws he gave them. He knew they would misuse the land he gave them. He knew they would misuse the military. He knew they would have terrible political decisions at certain times, right? We want a king, No, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't have a king. We want an alliance with Assyria. No, that's a terrible idea. Don't make an alliance with Assyria. We want to keep fighting and expand our borders and make our nation even bigger. No, don't do that. But God accommodated. He adopted this people he knew it would be complex he knew it would be messy he knew it meant involving himself in things he didn't really want to be involved in and being associated with things he didn't really want to be associated with and you see just like the issue of marriage i think jesus actually does point to an ideal when it comes to war and violence i think he points to the ideal of loving your enemies of working towards peace, of, as is humanly possible, seeking nonviolence and working towards forgiveness and reconciliation. And we can be thankful that God created a new community of people who follow Jesus and who can live into that ideals and aren't limited by land and militaries and laws and being a nation and the historical realities of the ancient Near East. But here's what that means. It means we can live into that ideal of Jesus, but we don't have to reject or throw out the Old Testament. We can hold these two things up in tension and say, aren't we glad God accommodated them? Aren't we glad he met those people where they were? And aren't we glad he still does that? He meets us where we are. And he gets involved in the sinful, messy realities on the ground. Maybe our only conclusion this morning is, thank you, God, for accommodating. (laughs) Even when it's hard, even when it's messy, even when it costs you a whole lot. Let me pray for us. Lord, Um, I pray that uh, as we wrestle with these kinds of questions and issues, you would continue to just reveal yourself to us. Um, We don't always have great answers to these questions, um, but I pray that we would sense you're still with us and that even through the fog, we can see enough of you to know that you love us and that you care for us, that you meet us where we are, and that you can give us a sense of peace and a sense of grace and a sense of your presence, and that we can trust that just as you are working and even at times accommodating 3,000 years ago, you're still working, and even at times today, you're accommodating. You're meeting us wherever we are. pray this in your name.